everybody and welcome to this exceptionally timely Constitution Unit event on improving standards of conduct in public life. I'm Meg Russell, the director of the Constitution Unit. On Monday last week, the Committee on Standards in Public Life, generally referred to as CSPL, which is the body first established in the 1990s by Prime Minister John Major in response to allegations of sleaze, published a, a major report, Upholding Standards in Public Life, the final report of its Standards Matter 2 review. This review had been launched to mark 25 years of the committee's existence, a period during which the landscape on standards regulation has changed a great deal, and the world has changed a great deal as well. This was a wide-ranging review of how the system was working and what changes might need to be made. It made 34 recommendations, particularly focusing on four key areas. Our speaker today is Jonathan Evans, Lord Evans of Weirdale, the chair of CSPL, its seventh in its existence, a position he took up in 2018. By background, he had a long career in the security services, retiring as head of MI5 in 2013, and he was appointed a crossbench peer in 2014. This event is timely as we planned it to coincide with the publication of the committee's report. But of course, no sooner had it hit the news on Monday last week, the Owen Patterson affair hit the news on Tuesday, and a presentation that Lord Evans made at the Institute for Government last Thursday was widely cited as influential in generating the government's U-turn on that business. So we're completely delighted to have Lord Evans with us to discuss his committee's important report and the broader culture of standards in public life, perhaps touching on some of the events of the past week as well. We're going to have an introduction from Lord Evans for about 10 to 15 minutes, followed by a discussion between the two of us for another 15 to 20 minutes, and then the rest of the time will be passed over for an open Q&A session with you, the audience. If you've got a question you'd like to put to Lord Evans, please write it in the Q&A function on Zoom, which is a different thing to chat. Um, Alan Rennick is then going to act as our Q&A facilitator, selecting a range of questions and asking the person who submitted each question to unmute themselves and ask it directly to Lord Evans if they wish. If you'd rather not ask your question directly or you prefer to remain anonymous, please indicate this when you're asking it and Alan will ask it on your behalf. A consideration for questioners in making that decision may be that this whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded and it'll be posted online on the Constitution Unit website, our YouTube channel, and form part of the Constitution Unit podcast after the event. We'll let you know when the recording is available and hope you might want to share it with others. But for now, let me pass over with great pleasure to Lord Evans for his opening remarks. Well, Meg, thank you very much indeed for the invitation to join you today. Uh, as you say, it's a very timely uh, opportunity uh, and, and I'm keen to talk about our report as, as well as the more immediate events over the last uh, week or so. Um, the Committee on Standards in Public Life is one of quite a number of standards bodies, committees and commissioners, uh, but we are an independent advisory body comprised both of independ independent members and also of party political representatives who are a very valuable part of our uh, discussions. And we were established initially by uh, John Major after the Cash for Questions affair uh, to be what he called an ethical workshop for running repairs on the standard system. Well, last week, as you mentioned, we issued uh, what I guess was a, a, a sort of like an MOT on the system, uh, our latest report upholding public standards. 
Uh, and this was an attempt to look across the whole tapestry of standards bodies uh, and to work out from uh, the evidence that we took and from the wide ranging discussions that we had where there were particular problems and to make recommendations on what could be improved. And our report focuses on arrangements for ethical standards within government. Uh, we don't see this as a radical report. We see it as building on previous arrangements, but we do recommend a number of what we would see as common sense reforms, which we believe would ensure that the system works more effectively both today and into the future. And in essence, we're calling for three things. We're calling for stronger rules in a number of areas. We're calling for more independence in the regulation system that we have. And we believe that there needs to be a stronger compliance culture and compliance system within government, because it became very clear from some of the conversations that we had that government are not well configured to ensure that compliance is uh, continues for all the, um, the undertakings that government's already made in regard to standards. Um, as mentioned, the, the, the system is complex uh, and that has grown up partly on the basis of recommendations that my committee has made over, the 20, over 25 years to regulate and enforce ethical standards. And we are aiming to ensure that for the next 25 years, we have a firm basis. The report follows on from a set of interim findings that we published in June this year, and we built on those findings and include clear recommendations to address gaps and concerns and reduce the reliance, particularly on convention on standards uh, regulation. The British Constitution, of course, has traditionally relied to a large extent on conventions and norms. And after taking a wide range of evidence, we believe that the current system of regulation is too dependent on those and in fact we need to move to a more a more statutory basis regulatory processes only function effectively when there is proper independence and at present that independence is not underpinned in statute in response to new and existing pressures we're calling for reforms to the ministerial code and the role of the independent advisor the advisory committee on business appointments and the business appointment rules, public appointments, and for increased transparency around lobbying. Specifically, we believe that the ministerial code should be rewritten solely as a code of conduct for ethical standards, with its provisions on everyday cabinet governance placed elsewhere. It should detail possible sanctions for breaches, including apologies, fines, or ultimately resignation. The business appointment rules should be strengthened and the advisory committee on business appointments should be able to institute a lobbying ban for up to five years in exceptional circumstances and the rules should be enforceable through legal arrangements we suggest that the sanctions might include taking it out an injunction against an unsuitable business appointment or the recouping of pensions and severance payments the commissioner for public appointments should be given greater oversight to prevent the packing of assessment panels and there should be stronger accountability and deterrence to appointing candidates deemed unappointable by assessment panels. And rules on transparency around lobbying need to be overhauled. The Cabinet Office should implement a more centralised and more frequent programme of publication with broader categories of publishing, published information and stricter criteria on descriptions of meetings. At present, those 
descriptions can be uh, uninformative to say the least. People talk to us about the complex arrangements we have in place to maintain standards and we discuss the option of a single ethics commissioner. But it's very difficult to get, in our view, to get around the need to tailor codes and standards to particular circumstances and particular institutions. A single commission would also bump into constitutional issues, putting a public official, as it were, in charge of and supervising the cabinet and the prime minister. In our view, it was better to reinforce the current checks and balances and create a greater independence for the regulators that we already have. We have also concluded from our evidence gathering that the independence of standards regulators is best guaranteed on the basis of primary legislation. We believe too many standards regulation regulators in government lack the necessary independence and that this can be an inhibiting factor on doing their work. Standards regulators in government are in a unique position in the wider regulatory landscape. Unlike other regulators, they regulate the behavior of those in power and so have a more complex relationship with those that they are regulating. Regulators need greater independence and protection from government interference. They should be empowered to speak out when necessary. And we believe that there are, appro there are appropriate and proportionate ways that the independence of standards regulators can be strengthened. So we recommended a basis in primary legislation for the Commissioner of Public Appointments, the Independent Advisor on Ministerial Interests, and the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. We looked at the question of the Home of House of Lords Appointments Commission, but we felt that to recommend a different basis for that one part of the Lords system in the absence of wider House of Lords reform would be uh, hostage to subsequent changes. And therefore we decided that now was not the right time to make recommendations. I want to move on to the importance of standards. Standards matter for our democracy. They matter for our economic prosperity and for our international influence and our foreign policy. We were struck by senior business leaders who told us that ethical standards matter for our economic prosperity and that political predictability, regulatory fairness and low levels of corruption all make the UK an attractive place to run a business and to invest. The past week has shown that standards do matter to the public. Ethical standards are important for making democracy work. The public does care about this. We did extensive polling in the, in the course of our review and were encouraged by the fact that about 75% of those polled were supportive and saw the importance of public standards. So sometimes people say, oh, well, this is a white hall bubble issue and you know, nobody really cares. I don't believe that is true. Uh, and the evidence is that people do care about this and have a quite a sophisticated understanding of the issues involved. I would also like to say that despite the headlines, most people in public life are there to do their best for the public. We witnessed extraordinary public service during the pandemic, as we do regularly from very many parts of the public sector. Ruining or running down the reputation of politics in public life is bad for all of us. And that is why the standard system and being able to demonstrate personal probity remains crucial. It's true that adherence to standards tends to go in cycles. I don't believe there's ever been a golden age 
for high standards. If you look back to you know, recent years, we've had the problems with MPs' expenses, we've had cash for questions, uh, we've had a whole variety of uh, issues that have arisen over many years. And however far you go back in, in constitutional British political history, there have been standards issues. I'm pleased that the government reversed its decision last week in respect of the Owen Paterson affair, but I would like to see them do more. Past governments have listened and responded to mounting public concern by reforming the standard system. Our package of proposals is a sensible and available way and could be enacted immediately. And we hope that the government will take the action that we have recommended. Thank you very much for that sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the main issues in the report. I should say to the audience, you know, this is a very important report. It's full of um, really interesting analysis and detail, including on those public opinion surveys uh, that you that you referred to. And there's a link to it um, on the event page, but obviously you can just Google it and find it at CSPL as well. I would urge members of the audience to look at the detail. Um, I want to focus the discussion primarily on the report because that is the whole reason that we fixed this seminar and um, you may be feeling a degree of frustration that it's been blown off the headlines um, by other matters, but I, I just wonder whether I could start by asking you to reflect a bit on the last week, because of course the matters that it's been blown off the headline by are some of the very matters in a sense that you are drawing attention to the need for change on. It's kind of ironic that in the report you say that standards regulation in government is lagging behind standards regulation in parliament. And yet what we saw was an attempt to overturn some of that parliamentary standards regulation. So I suppose, where do you think we are on this? Are we, are we in an age where um, politicians are feeling somewhat hostile to this or, or does the last week provide an opportunity for you to, to get your message across and get some of these changes made? I think it's very clear that the, the, the decisions made by the government last week did uh, create a huge wave of concern. Uh, you only had to look at the front pages of the newspapers over the last week to recognise that. Uh, and of course, they were pretty close to unimplementable, given that the opposition parties refused to cooperate in the new committee that was being proposed. So I think the government were wise to back down and to change direction. Um, I don't think any government enjoys being held to account or feeling that they are being challenged on the decisions that they have made. It's in the nature of politicians that you know, they have strong belief in what they are doing. Uh, but actually, I think if you step back from this, it is in the longer term interest of, uh, of government and it's in the longer term interest of the country to recognise that our tradition of accountability, our parliamentary processes, uh, and our tradition of strong ethical standards, not perfect by any means, but by international comparators, good, is a national asset to us, and we should welcome it. Uh, I can also understand the very particular circumstances in regard to uh, Owen Patterson and the, and the tragic death of his wife made this a very emotional matter. Um, but of course, the, the, the facts that were being discussed predated that. Um, and I think in a way that, that added an additional complexity. But I think yeah, there is an opportunity because I think it's become clear that there is an interest in high public standards, that there is a threshold 
which if you go through, there is public concern and it is ex expressed extremely vigorously. Uh, and people do feel that something went wrong. And so here is a good opportunity, therefore, to make some steps in the right direction uh, so the government can get on with uh, continuing to take forward its political agenda uh, without being distracted by these issues, which at the end of the day, uh, you know, are not not in the interests of the of any political party to be trying to ignore them. Okay, we might come back to some. I'm sure some of this is um, the stuff of the last week is going to come up in questions from the audience as well, and I can see that some of them are coming in already. So I should remind people to. Uh, post their questions in the Q&A if they'd like to be brought in a little bit later on. But let me take you through perhaps some of the issues raised in the report one by one. Um, you mentioned, um, and it's your very first recommendation, that you think that there should be um, a stronger compliance system in the civil service. You say the civil service should review its approach to enforcing ethical standards across government with a view to creating a more rigorous and consistent compliance system. Could you just give us a bit of an indication, you know, what what are the weaknesses of the current system and what precisely do you think needs to change? I think it's quite striking that if you look at best practice in the business sector, and obviously, you know, practice in the business sector ranges from excellent to wholly unsatisfactory. But if you look at the, the best systems, they are very clear on what the standards of conduct are. Best practice in the publics, in the in the government, in the private sector does put the systems in place and the information systems in place to ensure that compliance can be uh, provided with good advice and there is accountability for it. There, it is less well-resourced and less formal in government. I think some of the things that the government has itself agreed to do, uh, the actual compliance with that is patchy. So if you look at, for instance, the publication of lobbying data, it can be quite hit and miss. Uh, and I don't think that that's really a very professional way of addressing these sort of issues. So I feel that there is something that can be done to improve this. It's a point also and strongly made by Nigel Boardman in his report uh, on lobbying. Uh, and we agree with that and feel that the government need to look at the way it ensures that it complies with the undertakings that it has made. Okay, great. Cool. You mentioned the emphasis that you put on the ministerial code and how you think the ministerial code needs to change. And obviously you talk about the ethics advisor as well a lot in the report. Um, you suggest that it needs to, the ministerial code needs to be something closer to a code of conduct for ministers. Can you, can you say a bit about sort of what's wrong with it now and how making that change you think would help? Yeah, I would see this as a, a sort of a, cl a clarifying change. It's not a, it's not a fundamental change. But at the moment, the, the, the ministerial code is a strange beast which mixes uh, conduct issues with the practicalities of running cabinet government. And it seems to us it would be clearer if those were separate. If we can put the, um, the, the kind of cabinet handbook or bits of it elsewhere. And then we have a code of conduct. And it's very clear what that is. And it's very clear that this is something which it is expected that ministers will adhere to. One big question, I think, that... Um people will have, it may come up from the audience, I imagine, is whether it's plausible that anybody other than the Prime Minister could police the code, because clearly some of the frustrations of recent times have been about the Prime Minister not enforcing the code, despite the recommendations of the ethics advisor. 
is there any other way of doing it? I mean, you know, in, in the end, who polices the prime minister? And, and can there be any other way of um, getting those recommendations listened to? I think it's very difficult. I mean, you know, when we've discussed this in the committee, where you are talking about somebody who's an employee of the civil service or the, you know, the, the local government or whatever, then in a sense, you can say, well, these are the rules. And if you don't adhere to the rules, then, you know, you're not going to work here. It's obviously a very different position with those who are in elected office because they have got a mandate from their electors and that's the basis upon which they are undertaking their role. And of course, the prime minister has a very important constitutional position as head of the government and answerable in that sense to you know, the, the monarch on, on forming a government. So we, are not, we don't believe that you can hand this responsibility to a, an official or a, you know, another body. Uh, we do believe that there needs to be transparency and clarity about facts upon which decisions are being taken. And one of our reservations at present is that there are issues which appear to, to have a standards element to them, uh, but which don't get properly investigated and therefore they're left hanging in the air. For instance, the, the allegations around the planning decisions of, uh, of Robert Jenrick last year uh, the Prime Minister concluded that no investigation was required and therefore we don't know whether there was a serious issue there or not. And I think that's unsatisfactory. We accept entirely that the Ministerial Code has to be the Prime Minister's uh, responsibility as the person who runs the government. And we accept also that you, it, is the, it is the Prime Minister who then has to make the decisions on it. But I think making clear what the facts are and having an independent investigatory mechanism is uh, the best that we could recommend in terms of ensuring that we respect the constitutional realities, but also ensure that as far as possible, there's transparency over behaviour of ministers where there may be concerns. Mm. And I suppose, I mean, I tend to be a person who's, who, who says that Parliament isn't as, isn't as spineless as, as people assume. And indeed this week, well, we saw maybe a initially a seeming spinelessness, but then a distinct biting back. So the Prime Minister yes. can't get away with everything necessarily um, through his accountability to Parliament. You, you, you said, and, and this is something we've discussed at our events before, that there's need for greater protection for the standards watchdogs themselves in terms of how they're appointed and so on. Could, could you maybe say a bit more about that? Um, what, what would you like to see changed in terms of the independence of the, of the appointments to make those bodies more robust? The issue on this is that the, the public appointment system has become more uh, under the control of ministers in recent years. Uh, and there are some arguments in favour of that, particularly the fact that they are relying upon people in public appointments to deliver their business programme. And therefore, it's reasonable that they should have a strong say in who does that. The situation with uh, ethical regulators is slightly different because they are not there to go to deliver the government's program. They are there to oversee some of the ethical standards issues for government. So I think there is a less strong argument for those proceed processes being strongly in the hands of uh, ministers themselves, although ultimately the decision will of course rest with ministers. We therefore believe that there need to be additional safeguards uh, on the independence of the process leading to the appointment of ethics regulators and uh, we make those recommendations, but recognising that ultimately uh, appointment to public 
office is a prerogative of ministers who are uh, answerable to Parliament, etc., for their actions. Uh, but we do believe that greater independence is required around the process to ensure that the panels or the independent bit of the process, which is the panel recommendations, is staffed uh, and, and that the people on that are not selected for their political views, but for their independence and their, their knowledge of the particular areas. Yeah. And you also put one of your central recommendations is about making body statutory. So you suggest that there should be a statutory basis for the Commissioner for Public Appointments, for the Independent Advisor on Ministerial Interests, and for ACOBA on business appointments. And you, you mentioned um, the House of Lords Appointments Commission there, which is of particular interest to me. Just what would putting what would putting them into statute mean in practice? You've got that rather wonderful table in the in the mm -hmm. report, which I very much appreciated with the colour coding. Um, but Statute could mean different things. It could mean just requiring that they exist, or it could mean giving them enforce, actual enforceable powers. So, so how far would you want the statute to go? We believe that the principal issue is that their existence should be endorsed by Parliament, that they should have that reassurance that they cannot be abolished at the stroke of a pen or by secondary legislation, and that that gives them a stronger voice. Obviously, in looking at that, Parliament will take a view as to how far it wants to come forward with um, specific responsibilities or, uh, or uh, duties to rest on those, uh, those bodies. Our recommendation, which is a I think is important in terms of the independence and their, their as it were, platform for their work, is on making them uh, stat statutory in the sense that they have to be there and they cannot be abolished without uh, going back to Parliament. That is a, a, an important step, but it's not a hugely radical step. Uh, but what it does would be, for instance, to put the Commissioner for Public Appointments on a similar basis as the C Civil Service Commissioner. Uh, and we were influenced by comments by Peter Riddle, the recently uh, retired Commissioner on Public Appointments, that he felt that he was, to some extent, as a disadvantage in, in comparison with the First Civil Service Commissioner in not having a statutory basis. But we did not go so far as to recommend, for instance, that you know, the ministerial code should be owned by Parliament or, uh, or, or have that, uh, the difference of ownership. Uh, but we think that just ensure, enforcing existence of these bodies in such a way that they cannot be abolished with the stroke of a pen is a important safeguard. I mean, my role, for instance, we didn't recommend on that because in a sense, it's kind of marking our own homework. But I don't think there's any, you know, the Prime Minister could decide he doesn't want a committee on standards in public life next time. Thanks so much. And we'll close that down and save some money. Uh, and indeed, the committee had a near-death experience about sort of eight or 10 years ago, uh, which we survived. Uh, but I think that principle that these regulatory bodies are acting in the public interest that they are there partly to keep uh, um, an eye on, on those in power means that Parliament should have a say in their existence and their, uh, and their continued functioning. Hmm. I mean, if you take the House of Lords Appointments Commission as an example, and I know it's slightly out with your recommendations, it's sort of on the, on the side, um, the Prime Minister could abolish it. But the Prime Minister can also ignore its recommendations, and indeed he did. He's the first Prime Minister to have ignored a recommendation on propriety coming from the Appointments Commission. So it feels to me like the powers need to be enforceable too. 
you could go that far. I kind of think I might have lost contact now. I think we more or less got that. Um, but it's it's the difficult balance between those who are elected and those who are advising, basically. One of the benefits of the committee is that we have on the committee a number of uh, senior politicians who have um, sat on the other side of the table. Yes. And, you know, having been an official, obviously, you know, one sort of, one takes one view on it. Uh, if you have been a senior minister, then you might have a slightly different view. And therefore, these are issues and the exact balance between the political element and the official uh, appointed element is one that we have debated at some length on some points, you know, amicably and rightly. Uh, and the, the point that we landed was the one that's in the report. But I mean, there are arguments in favour of going further, but that would be a change in the, the, the responsibility for these bodies. And there is a constitutional discomfort about having an appointed body uh, overseeing and dictating to an elected minister accountable to parliament and so there's a there's a judgment and I know people take different views on it. And the whole like question is a little bit similar to the ethical advisor question isn't it? That, yeah. Where does the buck stop in the end? Um, I'm feeling like maybe we should go out to questions. I've got lots of other questions I'd like to ask you and I think maybe I'd like to ask you a couple of wrap-up questions at the end of the session um, about where it all goes but let's see what comes in from the audience and um, if we can reserve a few minutes at the end for that that would be Great. So, Alan, you've been keeping an eye on the questions. Um, who would you like to bring in? Uh, yeah, we've had lots of very good questions. So if we can manage several rounds, that would be fantastic. So I'll do a first round that is quite broad questions, thinking, thinking about the overall picture. So I'll first, there's firstly an anonymous question, which I'll read, and then I'll call on Alex Murdoch and Stephen Gosling, if they can unmute themselves in order to ask their questions. So the first anonymous one is, is Boris Johnson right to say that the UK is not a corrupt country? <clears throat> Does Lord Evans feel that there are more question marks now than in previous years over whether the UK can claim not to be corrupt? <clears throat> so that's the first question. And then Alex Murdoch has the next question. Alex, Alex can you speak? Shall Maybe I read out the question instead? Go on, go on, yeah. Uh, so Alex's question is, to what extent is the Committee for Stance in Public Life engaging regulatory catch-up as organisations and politicians find ways to avoid the current regulations? Rather than firm regulations, should there be a less predictable and avoidable moral code based on the old US politician's adage that if it walks like uh, and barks like a dog, it is a dog? In effect, create a situation where if an activity is deemed to be morally dubious, it can be deemed to be unacceptable and sanctioned, regardless of an apparent compliance with or avoidance of the regulations. Um, and then the okay. third question in this round oh. is from Stephen Gosling. Thanks, Alan. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Great stuff. Um, would we all have greater confidence in all of the rules for all of the activity of government, including CSPL, if those rules were codified, like almost every other developed country, and required a greater majority than conventional legislation, like every other developed country? So the first question, I think, was in regard to corruption. That was... Um, that was an issue that we that I touched on last week, but I don't think we are a corrupt country in the in, in the way that some countries are. I think we have a pretty good international reputation for our 
lack of corruption, if you look at Transparency International, etc. Um, but what I think is important is to recognise that that is not a happy chance of history uh, or something distinctive about the British personality. That is as a result of political decisions that have been made over generations. And we could become a corrupt country uh, if we don't attend to ensuring that we maintain standards. Uh, and I think we need to ensure in each you know, generation that we take the decisions that need to be taken. We have considerable, considerably less risk of corruption in the police than was the case 30 years ago because of new legislation, because of better oversight. We have considerably more uh, reason to be confident in, for instance, MPs' expenses because of the regular reforms that were made uh, 10 years ago. And the risk is that we think, oh, it couldn't possibly happen in this country. Uh, but the fact is it could. And that's why we need to keep at these issues. And we need to make sure that we don't take decisions which lead us in the wrong direction. Um, the second question was uh, in, can you just remind what the second question was? That was the... If it walks and barks like a dog, it is a dog. Walks and barks, yeah, okay. We've considered this in, not in quite those terms, but in terms of the, what, what you might call the, we have the seven principles of public life, uh, which were articulated originally by Lord Nolan. They're quite high level. Um, you could say, well, those should be the rules. And if somebody breaches that, those principles, then let, let, let that be counted as an offence. Um, I think that would put a huge amount of uh, responsibility on those people whose job it is to investigate those breaches, because you know, what, what counts as a breach of leadership? Uh, you know, what is a breach of objectivity? These are really difficult things to address at that level if you are then going to be applying sanctions to them. And therefore, I, I have reservations about that because I think it would be gained publicly uh, the other way, which is how you know, we have modelled it for the UK and indeed it's the way in which it was originally envisaged uh, that this should operate for Lord Nolan uh, by Lord of behaviours and principles that we believe should govern public life, and there is a personal responsibility of those in public life to adhere to that. Uh, I do apologise for this. Yeah. I haven't had this problem previously. You, you actually sound a lot better now. Uh, it's Good. rather sad if we can't see you, but hearing you is the important thing. So that I've, might got, a great, I've got a great face for radio. Um, <laughs> so, You've got a great face for our podcast, and I'm concerned that without, without <laughs> audio, we can't do that. So <laughs> um, The... The I'm not quite sure at what point I sort of went incommunicado, but I think it's really important that rules should be, it should be clear as to whether they are adhered to or not. And if you try to, to have a judgment on high level principles, I think you're gonna run into difficulties. It will be politically gamed and it will be discredited. So I feel that we do need to have specific rules that, that are breached, even though there is a moral expectation and responsibility on everybody in public life to live up to the seven principles. The question of uh, whether there should be a different uh, standard of, um, of uh, parliamentary authority for some of these rules, it's not an issue we've looked at and I don't know what practice is internationally. Um, so it 
could be that there would be an argument for that. I think ultimately that would be a matter for Parliament. And of course, if we had a written constitution, then I guess those sort of things are slightly easier to uh, adjust. As it happens, as everybody knows, we don't have a written constitution. And therefore, these issues come down to parliamentary practice. Uh, and I, I wonder how much significant re-engineering would be required to change the system. And, uh, and, uh, and therefore, until we've actually looked at that, I would be reluctant to give a, you know, a, a view from my committee. And it's also always easy to overstate how much detail there is in a written constitution, because um, there are, un there are there are rules um, out with the constitution that govern constitutional behaviour in all countries in practice. Um, Alan, what else have you got for us for a second round? I'll do a second round of questions that are all in various different ways about uh, processes and procedures uh, relating to these questions. So firstly, a question from David Anderson, uh, Lord Anderson, I presume, uh, who asks, would you favour an enhanced role for parliamentary select committees in approving or endorsing significant public appointments? Um, then, sorry, I should have said, I'm going to ask, secondly, an anonymous question, and then the third one will be Jamie Fisher. Uh, so if Jamie wants to unmute himself, that would be great. So the second question, the anonymous one, could standards reforms be a matter of public judgment, i.e. a referendum? If it's an imp important underpinning of democracy, as your report says, would this not be an appropriate response? And then, Jamie, you had a little bit of a, a, a preliminary bit to your uh, question, but if you want to focus on the, the core of the question. Yeah, sorry, I've been reading a lot about backbenchers at the minute. So basically, my question is, the role that we can envisage for government backbenchers in any future change proposed to uh, standards or their enforcement. Um, uh, Tony King in 1976 it sort of put it out there that the relationship that a government has with its backbenchers is the most important one in Parliament, and that's been widely accepted I'd say since then but the government seems to have damaged that a lot recently so it's just the so I'm kind of just asking the extent to which we can see uh, government backbenchers being pardon my French but a pain in the ass for the government when they try to change things if they do. Okay on the select committee point it's very interesting we we did discuss this at some length and we concluded that we did not recommend that public appointments should be, uh, you know, the, 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 the final say should be with a select committee. Uh, we, we did bring in select committees in saying that we believe that where there was a decision by a minister to appoint a, a quote, unappointable, unquote, candidate, that, that we needed to add an additional hurdle there, which was that they should go and then explain to the relevant select committee why they felt that an, an, unele an, un an unappointable uh, individual should be appointed to a public role because you know, it could be quite a difficult explanation to make, um, but the public deserve to understand why that should be the case. Um, there's a constitutional issue, this is a good forum for constitutional issues, but there's a constitutional issue about the, um, the, whether it is a role of a select committee to make that sort of decision as opposed to scrutinise the decisions made by uh, relevant ministers and departments. Um, and I think there, there, there is an argument that says that the selection of individuals for public appointment is an executive issue. Um, and that was the position that we maintained in the report that we made. On the question of should 
standards issues go to referendum. Um, I personally am pretty kind of, the trouble with referendums is you're not quite sure where they're going to end up. Um, and I personally am not enormously enthused about referendums and I never have been. Uh, you know, we live in a parliamentary representative democracy and I personally think that those decisions probably should continue to rest with our, rep our elected representatives. That's a personal view rather than a committee view because it's not an issue that we've discussed in the committee. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't personally find it an attractive option uh, because you know it, it'll. You may go with question A, but you might find that people answer question B when you actually get to the ballot box. Uh, backbenchers. I mean, it's interesting this week on backbenchers because I think I suspect part of the reason that the government went initially for the decision that it made was because of acute pressure from certain backbenchers to say that something had to be done about the, um, the standards decisions that were being made. And that led to a decision by the government. But, and as far as one can tell from the media reporting, this also, that having done that, it also infuriated other backbenchers who felt that they'd been pushed into the lobbies against their will, and that then the government backed down and they were left exposed. So backbenchers, I don't think are a, they're not a homogenous group. And on standards issues, they're not a homogenous group either. There will be those backbenchers who uh, are very tough on this and take that as a, you know, an important part of their responsibility. And there may be others who take a different view. So, um, I mean, and I think the last week very clearly demonstrates that because of backbench pressure, both to take the original decision and to, uh, to untake that decision were, I think, very strong. Thank you very much. And um, if I may say so, your sound quality has been perfect since you turned your camera off. So I hope that's yeah, not my just My face was interfering. <laughs> we can keep going. Now, I think Alan has at least uh, one more good round of questions to throw at you. I certainly do. Uh, so these are some uh, questions about specific bits of the standards regime, I guess. So I've got an anonymous question, then a question from Ian Thomas that I'll read out myself, and then someone called Butler F, or F Butler, I guess, uh, um, uh, who, who I think uh, will be able to answer, ask their own mm -hmm. question. So the anonymous question, um, the committee's own research has yet again shown high levels of public concern that the principle of honesty is not being lived up to. This is why people are so frustrated with Westminster politics. Yet the committee's report failed to address dishonesty in politics. With standards two recommendations out, will the Committee on Standards and Public Life now consider conducting an inquiry specifically into the issue of dishonesty? Then Ian Thomas's question is, without reform of the Lords, how in the interim do you protect against the flooding of the legislature with cronies, some highly unsuitable, by a corrupt prime minister who's using the system to avoid scrutiny and censure? I don't think Ian has any particular prime minister in mind there, um, uh, uh, but there's a question. And then Butler F, if you can unmute yourself. You're muted. Uh, shall I ask the question? Uh, so the question is a simple one. Um, do you agree with the government's view that the um, inquiry procedure, so this is relating to the Committee on Standards, 
uh, needs a new appeals procedure? And if so, what form could it take? Okay. Um, I suspect I know who has asked the honesty question. Um, it, it's a legitimate area that the committee could decide to look at. And I think you know, the accountability, objectivity, honesty, all depend on uh, access to accurate information. And of course, there is a big social and political problem with information uh, and the way in which information is uh, obtained and the way in which information is handled uh, in the, you know, the digital world. So I do think there is a standards issue there. Whether it is one on which this, my committee is actually the most effective to uh, to rule, I think is questionable. And one of the dilemmas for the committee is always that we are a very small body with very limited resources and potentially an extremely wide canvas of different areas that we might look at, ranging from public service providers who are private companies through to the cabinet, through to local government, etc. So the choice as to where we go next is one for the committee. I don't think that the committee are likely to go on the question of honesty, although it's a legitimate issue, uh, because of the pressures of different areas that we might look at. Uh, so acknowledged as an issue, whether it is the one that we do next, I think will be for the committee to decide. On the question of Lord's reform, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to go down that track very far, um, you know, there's a hundred and something years of failed Lord's reform behind us. Uh, it never ends up where people think it ought to end up. Um, it's ended up in a very odd place at the moment. It has to be said in all sorts of ways. And the number of us up in the House of Lords is, you know, too large. And the arrangements that you know, we had with the Burns Committee, which would have reduced the numbers in the Lords over time, have not necessarily been fully implemented by the parties and particularly by Prime Minister. Uh, so we are ending up with a you know, reversion to being you know, the biggest, second biggest parliamentary chamber in the world or whatever. Uh, so I think there is a problem. Uh, and I don't think you can break off one little bit of it on its own because it's a multifaceted problem. And the problem historically has been it's never been an issue quite high enough on the list to expend too much time and political capital on um, because when it's happened in the past, Quite a lot of capital has been expended and the outcome has been, you know, possibly even more curious than it was the last time around. Um, so fortunately, I don't think that's one which my committee has to uh, make recommendations on. But I can absolutely understand why there is concern that the current system is hard to justify and is open to, uh, to heading in the wrong direction in terms of the structure. Um, the question of appeals against... Um, the, uh, the decisions of the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, if that's the system that continues. Uh, this is an issue which uh, Chris Bryant and his committee will be, I think, uh, looking at. Uh, and ultimately, it's, of course, a matter for the House of Commons how they do these things. All I would say is that it is not in itself um, an absolute, you know, a necessity that there should be some quasi-judicial process for judging the outcome of complaints. Uh, in the House of Lords, there is not that, and the, the process up there, there was a, what I think many people would have seen as a rather unsatisfactory process around Lord Leicester uh, two or three years ago, 
and the outcome of that is that there is not a debate on the uh, recommendations of the conduct committee um, and that I think is probably a wise move. Um, you could envisage an appeal, you could envisage that it would be a wise element to add, I don't think there's a problem with that but I don't think it's an absolutely sort of vital part without which any process is uh, unfair because the Parliamentary Commission of Standards does report, of course, and her report goes to the, uh, the cross-party standards committee. So it's not that she merely uh, issues her report and it is uh, it lands on the, uh, the person against whom the you know, allegations have been made. So, um, it, so I can see the arguments for it. I don't think it's necessarily the case that you need it, but the, you know, if it's structured, structured right, it could be quite a sensible thing to do. Um, but it, I, my personal feeling is that that's a side issue for what happened last week, uh, because if there was really concern about the process, then that process could have been changed any time in the last 12 years or so that it has been in place. Um, and uh, so I think the, the government are right now to separate the personnel of personal issues and the individual case from the process. And I look forward to hearing what the uh, what the uh, what Chris Bryant's committee has to recommend on that. Thank you very much for all of that, which we heard perfectly. Um, we're, we're due to wind up in a few minutes at, at two o'clock. And with Alan's permission, I, I'd like to come back and just ask a couple of final questions myself, getting back to the process and, and implementation, if I may. Is that OK with you, you, Alan? Um, he's nodding. Um, in, uh, some of this has been touched on, I suppose, in a sense, by those questions, um, because the question is, what does it... What does it take to make this all happen, what you've proposed? I mean, one specific question would be, how much of what you're recommending depends on legislation happening? Because, you know, Lords reform, for example, depends on legislation happening. And uh, as you say, we've been waiting a very long time for that. We know what some of the answers are, but the government chooses not to legislate. So how much of it do you need legislation for? How much of it can be implemented perhaps by the prime minister? And how much, even if the prime minister wants to um, you know, not, not, not respond with too much enthusiasm can be achieved by other people, do you think, in, in, amongst what you've recommended? Clearly, some of it needs statutory backing. You can't have been putting the, the particular regulators onto a, onto a statutory basis, self-evidently needs statute. Um, other areas don't need that. Uh, you know, allowing the, the new arrangements for independence for the, indep the independent advisor on ministerial interests is not a legislative issue, uh, although in fact number 10 I think already said they're not going to do that, uh, which I regret, but uh, obviously it's up to them in the end. Um, other things are within the gift of, uh, of government, the creation of a compliance process system, for instance, would be a thing that does not need uh, statutory intervention. So there are bits that would need parliamentary time, there are other parts that do not. Uh, I think almost any, we, are, we recommend as a committee formally to the Prime Minister, uh, and therefore I suspect that it will be for Ministers to decide what, if any, of these recommendations they wish to take forward. My guess is that they will want to take into consideration also some of the recommendations from Nigel Boardman, which are also on the table, and some select committee recommendations in adjacent areas which are also on the table. So it may be that we see a, a package of, uh, of proposals put to Ministers who will then decide on what they want to do. But um, I very much hope that the government will take this as an opportunity. There was clearly 
And, you know, as the Chancellor said yesterday, uh, you know, the recognition that the handling last week was not good and, you know, could be done better. Uh, and my view is that this is an opportunity since there are recommendations on the table, uh, which already got a degree of cross-party input uh, and which have been properly researched to take some steps forward and to reassure the public that high standards in this country will continue and that we aren't in any risk of going back to or going towards a, a more corrupt system. Mm. And, and then a final question related to that would be what the rest of us can do. Um, I mean, we've got lots of keenly interested people on this call and I'm sure listening to the recording afterwards. There are academics, there are pressure groups, there are backbenchers in parliament, which as Jamie indicated are so important. There are committees in parliament. Are there things that we can do to help to push this agenda forward and get some change, do you think? The key, to, the key issue will be what do ministers decide to do about this? And I think therefore, the more well-informed and thoughtful voices there can be saying that these are reforms that are sensible, that are practical, and that would improve the life in the UK, which is what this is about ultimately, the better. And therefore, any, any advocacy in support of these recommendations, we would certainly welcome. We know we're very pleased to see the Times this morning in its editorial endorsing a number of those recommendations uh, and support from The Guardian. Um, so, you know, we need to get those voices clear so that government will take these recommendations seriously and we will get a response uh, in a timely way so that, you know, we can take steps forward, government can take steps forward and uh, then uh, the, this particular scandal period can pass and we can hopefully move into a slightly better position. Thank you so much. Now, I won't ask you to speak again, so you might like to turn your camera on so people can see you to say goodbye. Um, I would like to thank you so much for coming along and talking to us today. Your life must have been so unbelievably busy in the last couple of weeks. We're delighted that you were able to keep this appointment and that you, we were able to give you a bit of an opportunity to air some of the ideas uh, in the report. And I would urge people to take a look at it. Um, and read the recommendations in more detail. Very grateful to the audience for attending and for your very uh, thoughtful questions. And if you've enjoyed the event, then I would encourage you to look out for the email that you should receive telling you that the recording is available and to share it with your friends and encourage them to look out for it on our podcast. Um, let me also give a quick plug for our next event. Uh, which takes place at lunchtime on the 1st of December. The details are already on our website. Um, it features Professor Tim Bale from Queen Mary University of London and um, Lord Daniel Finkelstein, a commentator at the Times and Conservative peer, um, talking about responses to the populist radical right and in particular how the UK has responded, um, the threat of those parties to... Um, mainstream right-wing parties, including in our country, the Conservatives, and what the impact of that is and might be on our constitution and democracy. So if you haven't signed up for that already, uh, please look out for it and please do so. Um, but it just remains for me to say a final thank you um, to Lord Evans and good luck uh, with getting your report implemented and we will be watching carefully. And thank you to our audience for attending. Thank you.